Good morning. Well, it's nice to um, be back with you. If you're thinking I'm looking different, that's because my hair's grown back. Some of you are thinking, his hair's grown back. Yes, my hair did fall out the last time. It was, it was the, uh, the fear of coming back here again. No, that's, that's, that's not actually true. Um, but yeah, for a whole year, um, my body seemed to shut down and my hair fell out and grew back white. And um, I, I aged about 50 years in a year. And then the Lord decided to, no, he's better off with brownish hair, so we'll give it back to him. Well, it is, it is really good to be back with you. I must admit, I am always thankful for being in, invited across. And uh, I brought my family today because we're down to one car. And uh, it was easier for us all to come across than make them walk to church in the rain. Because it's raining in Edinburgh, believe it or not. Um, but it is really good to be back with you. Um, so I've just finished quite a lengthy uh, series on different subjects. One of the things that I'm very concerned about is one of the things I'm going to bring to you this morning. I hope it's edifying for you. I hope that it will bless you. But I hope it will cause you to think about the future, especially in relation to the younger ones growing up. And not only you growing up in the church, but... One of, one of the big issues I find facing the church in the West is the unified disunity. Um, that, that unified disunity is something that a pastor is entirely aware of. And that is in a church where people like different things being in different ways and they practice even communion differently or baptism differently or even in the same church, a number of things are different. The pastor is in a very difficult position in that if he does something about it, he creates disunity. But if he does nothing, you already have disunity. So you're caught between a rock and a hard place, between the disunity that you currently have and the disunity you have by trying to address the disunity. It's very difficult. There is an answer. I'm not going to give you it this morning. But what I am going to give you is the reason why, uh, reason why battles have to be fought. Some things are worth fighting for, and not all conflict is bad. Not all conflict is bad. So let me just preface this reading, if I can, with the, the very first battle. And the very first battle was in the Garden of Eden between uh, Satan and the man and the woman. And at that point, there was from momentarily, both the men, man and the woman, were without sin. And when Eve took the fruit first and ate, just before she gave it to her husband, for a split second, there was a moment where he was without sin. Now, what he should have done is fought the right battle. God came into the garden and he should have said, take my life for hers. <clears throat> she sinned, I will lay down my life for hers in order to make this situation good. Now, he didn't. He just went along with the same temptation and fell with her. And we know that that's what he should have done because that's exactly what Jesus done years later in that he gave his life for his church, his bride. He laid down his life for us. The battle that I'm trying to address this morning as we come to the reading is that godly things are worth fighting for, but we have to fight the right battles in the right way. 
So if you'd like to turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Now I'm going to make an assumption here that being that it is the sermon that Jesus preached, we all remember this one. Okay, we may not remember anybody else's sermons, but I'm going to assume that we remember at least large parts of this one. And therefore, you'll notice that the structure of the sermon is talking to people who belong to him, and it's a kingdom sermon for kingdom people. And the distinction that he makes is threefold. And that's, that comes out at the end of the sermon where you have the wise and the foolish, um, the wise and the foolish builder, And you also have the Pharisees that are praying just so that people can say, well done, you know, you're you're praying so that everybody can see. So the distinction here is that there are God's people that practice God's way, and then there are foolish people, and then there are religious people. Those who go through the motions without any internal change, those who don't go through any motions whatsoever without any change, and those who recognize to live a cruciform life is extremely difficult. No one's perfect, and therefore the purpose of this sermon that Jesus preaches is to change us, is to get us to do what we don't want to do. That's the purpose of Jesus preaching this sermon to us. So if you want to cast your eyes down to verse 13 of chapter 5, and I'm just going to read to the end of verse 16. Now hear God's word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in the whole house." In the same way, let your, sh- let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father God, we would ask now that you would enlighten our minds with a view of changing our heart. We recognize, Father, that you preach these words to us. Your words to us are to change us. They are to cause us to think in ways that Christ wants us to think in and that our behavior would follow along with our new belief and understanding. Father, we recognize that your grace is great and your mercy also. So, Father, we come before you this evening, uh, this morning, asking for your blessing upon us. And as we do, we recognize that you're in need of nothing and you owe us nothing. But because you are a gracious God, we ask, Father, that you would bless and keep us this morning under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we have a short reading, and with a short reading like this, you may wonder why anything more needs to be said. And in many ways, it doesn't. What Jesus has said here is clear, it's simple, and there's no ambiguity. No one, can, no one can go away from here and go, well, technically, 
or it, it can be understood in a different way. No, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You, you're the salt of the earth, don't lose your saltiness. You, you are the light, and, and don't go hiding yourselves so that that light cannot be seen by others. So the statements that Jesus make is clear. It is for your benefit, and it is to remind us who we are as God's people on earth. But there is a distinction that needs to be made here, and the distinction is a fairly straightforward one, and that is how we are to understand it. Not whether or not we do understand it, but how we are to understand it. And one of the ways that we're meant to understand it is not in isolation to the rest of Scripture. Uh, One of the things that happens when you understand verses in isolation to other parts of the Bible is that you're unable to know where it fits in the big picture. But, but more importantly than that, you're unable to call to mind the scriptures needed for a particular situation you find yourself in. So is someone struggling with assurance of salvation, and there are many Christians who struggle with assurance, it, while, while the truth of creation would be a good truth to remember, and while the truth of of tithes and offerings or communion would be good truths to remember, remember the verses, even be able to quote them back, they're not, they're not going to help you with assurance. Well, the communion one, if you, if you worked it out, would. So we've got to remember the verses uh, in, in the wider body of everything that God has spoken so that we can call to mind the verses that we need when our Christian life is under threat by lies, by temptations, by, by accusations, by insults of other people. We need to be able to draw on the strength of God's word to keep our mind healthy and our heart healthy. And the whole point of worship is to renew the mind in order to renew the whole person. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you wake up in the morning and something's got your mind, it's normally got you for the rest of the day. If it's got your mind, it's got you for the rest of the day. Now, I know on a few occasions that there are some people who, has, who have fallen out with someone in their dream, in their dream, and then the next day when they see them, they're not the same towards them. And you want to point out to them, it was, it, was, it was just a dream. The trouble was, it, was, it had such an effect over you that <laughs> now it's altering the way you are towards them in real life. So this is no small thing when it comes to the renewal of the mind, Romans 12. Our mind is to be a healthy, maturing mind under God. And one of the ways to do that is to read God's word for its meaning and not just to do word recognition, okay? I I read it all, okay? What does it mean? And and so we have to get to the meaning because this is the thing that keeps us healthy. This is the thing that guards us against temptation. And a case example of this would be Jesus being tempted uh, by Satan in the wilderness. Now we know what it's a picture of, we know what it's to reflect. It's to reflect Israel's 40 years of disobedience in the wilderness and Jesus doesn't disobey in the wilderness rather he quotes the appropriate scriptures at the appropriate time given the temptation that he is coming under now Jesus doesn't pick on any scriptures 
as though any scripture will do, he picks on the specific scriptures that answer the specific temptation. And this is, this is part of that maturing process of listening and understanding God's word. So we need to understand what it is to be salt and light in the context of everything. Okay? Not just in the context of a few words, but in the context, how does it look everywhere? So here's the summary of how this sermon pans out. When Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light, and, and none of those are to be diminished in any ways. They're not to be diluted or diminished. If, however, the salt has lost its saltiness, then you can expect to be trampled on. Because that's, Jesus says that's what follows. And if the light loses its, its hid, then, of course, your witness disappears. And so in both cases, the salt and the light here is the power of your witness on earth for God. It is the power and effectiveness of your witness in your home, in your wider family, in church, out where you work, wherever it is. But Jesus is warning us against the very real possibility of those coming under threat, either through dilution or through diminishing or hiding or whatever it may be. Now, the reason why that matters is because you're kingdom people. You have nothing to shy away from. And kingdom people belong in God's kingdom and they're to, they're to be that witness and light into the world so that others come into God's uh, kingdom. Now, when salt is lost, I don't want to give you a chemistry lesson here, but because most, most of you will know that sodium chloride, you can't lose the taste of salt. But, and don't ever try and separate uh, salt, by the way because sodium's no good for you and chloride's no good. They both kill you. But boy, when they're put together, your chips taste great, don't they? They just, they just come alive. The mother-in-law's coming along and I'm separating salt in the kitchen. No, that's, that was a joke, by the way. I happen to, to love her very much. But I call them the outlaws. This isn't being recorded, is it? Just don't... Just, You get the picture. Jesus is making a point. He's not teaching a lesson about chemistry. And back in the day, salt was able to lose its saltiness because it wasn't in its pure form. And Jesus is addressing a loss of influence. And when you lose influence in your life, you lose ground like two armies in a battle do. And that's how you're meant to think about this. That the way you live your life in the world, you either gain ground or you lose ground. But there is no neutrality. You're not stood somewhere where the battle isn't taking place. And every time you lose against temptation, that ground has been taken away from you. And we've seen plenty of Christians uh, who we know and love and pray to return back to Christ, but who persistently over the years have lost large chunks of ground. And now that they're, they're there, you know that they belong, but, but they're, they're unable to fight any battle. They're unable to really be assured of whether or not they believe any of this stuff to be true. So every, every moment of your Christian life is an issue of whether or not you're gaining ground or you're losing ground. 
And so this is a picture of that. If the salt loses its saltiness, can it be made salty again? Well, what happens is whether it can or isn't, uh, you will be trampled on underfoot. Uh, an example would be of this would be 1 Kings 18, when Obadiah hid a hundred prophets in the cave so that they wouldn't be killed. And you think, well, that seems like a good thing to do. Well, not when you consider what a prophet is for. Okay, if it's a hundred women and children, okay, <laughs> that's a good decision. But not when it's a hundred prophets. They're meant to be out there. Telling the world what to believe. Telling the world where they're going wrong. Prophets are not meant to be hid in a cave. And so Obadiah's sin, while it looked like he was being gracious to a hundred prophets, was actually taking light and hiding it in a cave. Okay, They'd lost their influence. And therefore, in not them as people, but them as influence, they were good for nothing. They no longer served the purpose for which they were created so we understand these pictures. Another picture from the New Testament in Corinthians is that all of our work is to be kingdom work so that it makes it through the fire. Now, Paul goes on to say that some of you will make it through the fire, but some of your work won't. It all depends what you built and what you built with. And we shouldn't be satisfied with saying, well, as long as I make it through the fire, I'm okay. That's not the point of Christian life and witness and work. We are to establish things now in order to make them through the fire. Salvation, the message of the cross, is not an escape plan from this world. It is a message about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. We even pray that. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet too often the gospel message seems to be saying the very reverse. It, this is an escape plan. As if we don't believe God's kingdom is coming. As though we don't believe God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we have a pessimistic view of what the future looks like, we just give up, right? Because we're, we're all waiting to go anyway. But that doesn't seem to be the picture spelled out either here or anywhere else in the New Testament. We need to establish things here that make it through the coming judgment, make it through the coming fire. So there is a wisdom needed to live a kingdom life, a wisdom that is needed to live a kingdom life. And to put it simply, it's how to keep the salt salty. How to keep the salt salty. Or in a slightly different way, how you become a person. The whole point of salvation is to make you a person. You can say, well, I already am. Well, not according to the New Testament, you're not. At least not in the way that Jesus wants you to be. How, what does true humanity look like? Well, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, it looks like people in relationship with each other and in relationship with God. That's true humanity. Now look at the world. Is that true humanity? Well, clearly not. It's subhumanity. People, people are trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be and do in life, and they're never going to get there unless they get there through Christ. It's only through Christ do people become people. So this is where we need to learn the right lessons. Okay, 
Point number one, maybe. Learn the right lessons. Notice in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, after he speaks about salt and light, he goes on to speak about the law, anger, lust, divorce, being clear, retaliation, loving enemies, giving, praying, fasting, not loving money. He speaks about worry, judgment, nature, and the foundation of life. And you'll notice that all of these things are to change a person. Every single one of them is about how we are to be. And they have to be said because we're not already there. Okay? The fact that we're being told them is because we're not them. So the message that Jesus preaches to us is to change us, is to get us to do what we don't want to do naturally. Now, the new nature that we have in Christ means that we're able to confess our sins, repent of them, and move forward into restoration, into blessing, into forgiveness, into becoming more and more like Christ. But the warning is, salt can lose its saltiness. Light can be hidden. And the ways and the things that affect those things, salt and light, are things like God's law, God, anger, your anger, lust, divorce, being clear, retaliation, loving enemies, giving, praying, fasting, not loving money, about worry, uh, judgment, nature, foundation of life. All of those things have an impact on us. So we need to learn lessons, and Jesus says these are the lessons we need to learn as we live in the kingdom. Now, I want to point out something simple that you all know, but I want to point it out just to be clear. There are some things in this world that can be done equally as well by an atheist as they can by a Christian, because the thing being changed is not the person, but the object of work. So let's take, for example, a carpenter. A carpenter learns how to measure a piece of timber twice and cut it once, Okay, he's then able to know how to join it and put it together and, and being able to build A-frames or tables or chairs or whatever it may be. But and the atheist is able to learn how to do exactly the same thing. Measure twice, cut once, join, uh, use different types of joints, uh, different types of glue, different types of fixing points, whatever it may be, whether he creates A-frames or chairs, just like the Christian carpenter. But you'll notice that in both situations, the things being changed is the timber. It's the wood that's going through the change, not the person. But when you come to Christianity, sometimes we learn the wrong lesson and we, we, we focus on skill-based things that change the objects out there without ever changing the person in here. And that's one of the lessons that we frequently get wrong, it seems. See, the carpenter doesn't have to change as a person to become a good carpenter. The atheist doesn't have to become a Christian to become a good carpenter. Okay, the skills can be learned, but the skills are learned in such a way where the object being changed is not the person, but the pieces of timber. And so the ministries in the church need to recognize what's being changed. What's actually being changed? Is it the, where's the change taking place? And if it's off balance or if it's one more than the other, then we're able to figure out what works or what we should be doing 
rather than the other things that we are. Take, for instance, a successful doctor. He's gone through eight years of medical school. He's got all of his things, all of his qualifications, highly skilled, he or she, highly skilled, who then aborts babies. What's the problem? What's the pro well, the problem is, is that we ought to be able to recognize the difference between someone being highly skilled and whether or not they have learned how to become a person. A highly skilled doctor who aborts babies hasn't learned how to become a person. But they've learned how to be skillful, they've learned how to go through huge amounts of training, they've learned how to do all of these things, but the one thing they, they haven't learned is how to become a person. That lesson hasn't been learned. And so I've seen, and perhaps you have too, plenty of marriages fail, not because the husband isn't brilliant at his job, but because being brilliant at your job doesn't make you a good husband. What makes you a good husband is learning how to be a person, and then that will follow. And so what happens is, is that people are unable to distinguish, it seems, the key difference between what lessons we're actually learning and what changes are actually being made. And so husbands who haven't learned how to be husbands can hold down big companies and, and be, be looked upon as brilliant in their chosen field, but, become, but can actually be a very poor husband or a poor father. The same goes for the mothers as well. Okay, I'm not just picking on men, but I'd like to pick on men more than women because I think that they need to carry more responsibility than what they do. Um, but the issue is fairly straightforward when we look at it like this. It's also the same with parents. Parents can lose the opportunities that God have given to them to raise their children in the right way, and they can never regain them. But they can go to the God who is merciful, who can change everything. That's the blessing. So the issue here is we need to be able to make a clear distinction between what we're good at and what we're becoming. Learning the right lesson is how to become a person. Let me give you an illustration. Not too long ago, there was an incident around the dinner table. And we follow a very simple principle in our home, and it's called the Garden of Eden principle that all fellowship, table fellowship with the family, needs to be treated like the Garden of Eden without sin. But the moment sin erupts, okay, someone has to leave the garden. It's simple. That's the way God did it. I just find copying him is much easier than trying to come up with my own way of doing it. So here we have this incident. We're all around the table, the Garden of Eden, you know, and all of a sudden there's trouble in paradise, Okay. Sin starts presenting itself in one of the members of our family. And, of course, that member has to then be ejected from the garden. <laughs> out you go. And the point is, is out there has to be worse, okay, than the blessing that it is in here, or else they'll never want to come back. Okay, if the bedroom is better than the table, they're not going to mind being ejected from the garden. Okay. So whatever it's like out there, you have to make it terrible for them. Well, not too bad. They're children, after all. But you, you have to lead on thick. So, so this little girl who can... How can little girls make grown men cry? I never know. 
But there we have it, and so out we go. This is hurting me more than it's hurting you, which would, which would never be understood, but I thought it'd make me feel better if I just said it. And so out we go, and you are there, okay? You are there until it's time for you to come back into the garden. Well, how do I know? Well, how do I know? And as I, as I put her where she was, she proceeded to tell me that mum had taught her that there were 60 seconds in a minute. I thought, well done, that's, I'm, that's, that's really good. She then went on to say, so how long do I have to sit here? And then this is where the real lesson began. I had to sit her down and say, you're not there to learn how to count. You're there to learn how to be a person. And too often parents discipline their children as though it's a math lesson. Right? You get to 100, you can come off. What you're doing is you're misunderstanding where the change needs to take place and what the lesson needs to be. The lesson should not be learn how to count. The lesson should be learn how to repent. Because it's repentance that gets you back into the garden and forgiveness. And so one of the issues that we have with our children now, and, and me as parents, and me and my wife always, is that we realize that sorry doesn't cut it. We, we ban the word sorry in our house. And the reason we ban the word sorry is simply because sorry, right, is normally said by people who don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm sorry, can we move on? And what they're trying to do is they're trying to pay the debt. The trouble is they're indebted to you and that debt needs to be forgiven. That's the message of salvation. And so when someone sins against you, okay, the, the only way forward is not for the person who has sinned against you to say sorry. They can't put it right. Only the forgiver can put it right. And so what needs to happen from the person who's committed the sin is they need to come to you and say, can you forgive my debt? I've sinned against you. I'm in debt against you. And I need your forgiveness to wipe this debt clear. That's the only way we can move forward. But too often, we substitute the word forget. We substitute God's way of doing it for our way of doing it because we like to pay our own debts. <laughs> Let's get this over and done with as quickly as possible. But that's not the way it works. And so what you end up with is you end up with a whole generation of people who are saying sorry and sitting on steps learning how to count who have not learned how to become people. They have not learned how to become people. They've learned how to count. They're going to be great <laughs> when they take their IGCSEs or whatever it may be. Sorry, IGCSEs is um, uh, a home education uh, qualification rather than, uh, I don't know what the school ones are, but okay. they're going to be great when they take um, their, their qualifications, but they're, going to, they're not going to be ready to then get married or hold down a job or a number of other things because they haven't learned how to become people. And this is the area that Jesus is concentrating on here. We need to learn the right lessons. And we need to be able to teach the right lessons because if we get them wrong, we end up teaching the wrong things. And what happens is we have all of these children growing up in the church who are now trampled on underfoot. And someone wants to point out, yes, it's normally around the age of 15. Okay, it doesn't have to be. 
It doesn't have, that's not normal. That's abnormal to the gospel. And it's definitely abnormal to covenant children. Most definitely abnormal to covenant children. And just in case you think 1 Corinthians 7, uh, that children of believing parents are considered holy unto the Lord. They are set apart in a different way. And I haven't got time to go into that, but there's a key distinction to be made here. Moving on then, after we've learned the right lesson, we need to learn wisdom so that we know how to apply those lessons. So learning the right lesson, now learning wisdom. One of the things that happens with the sermon here is, as I've said, is it gets us to do the very things that we don't want to do. It gets us to respond in ways that we ought to respond when we're not responding in those ways. And so Jesus here is moving us through maturity in a way where we recognize that everything that's changing is not out there, but in here, in my heart, in my mind, in my physical way before other people. And so Jesus points out, as, as God does frequently, that he's not beyond putting us through a test. Now, the purpose of a test is that you don't know the results until the test is in. Okay, the reason why a test needs to happen is because things get revealed in a test that wouldn't otherwise if the test didn't exist. So God takes you through the test, and as you go through the test, abnormalities in your face start showing up. Areas where you're weak and areas where you're strong suddenly become apparent but they become apparent in the test. And what we recognize in a church is that my strength may be your weakness, but your strength may be my weakness. Okay? None of us are the same. But it's the tests that God puts us through that reveals those things to us to decide and to reveal to us where we are exactly in our walk with the Lord. So once you're able to see what you're getting correct, fine. Once you're able to see where you're stumbling, is it the case that you just so happen to be stumbling over that point and it's the same point again and again and again? That, that some men can't seem to get this, this one thing brings them down. And with the women, this, this one thing brings them down. Mothers, husbands, fathers, whoever it is. Right? Why does it keep occurring? Well, because you've not passed it yet. That's why it keeps occurring. You've not passed it yet. <laughs> you move on when you pass the test. When, you, when you've demonstrated, you know how to fight that battle and win. And, and if it keeps occurring, you're just, you're just doing resets. That's all that it is. It's nothing more than that. God is maturing you, but God, God doesn't do like most schools does, where they, they move you up a year, whether, you, whether you're ready for it or not. God doesn't work like that. God keeps you where you are until you're ready to move on and to move on and to become mature. That's just the way God treats us. So the issue here is about becoming mature in Christ and that maturity not losing its influence. The salt not becoming saltless, the light not being hidden. Now one of the areas that Jesus points to in particular, especially with the law of God, is the issue of turning the cheek. No one gets through life, the Christian life, without at some point having to turn the cheek. And the reason I pick on this one is an illustration, 
is because it is, it is clearly, without any doubt whatsoever, a huge pointer and illumination of the cross of Christ itself. So the law goes like this, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is a way of restraining, or at least stopping, retaliation from going too far. Now, I grew up in a home with six younger brothers, and I know exactly what it's like for something to get out of hand really, really quickly. One brother, one brother nudges another one, and suddenly a punch comes back, but it was only a nudge. And so we understand that in human nature, <laughs> things get out of control really quickly. And so this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was God's way of saying, look, there's a measurement of justice. There's a measurement to justice. And justice means that you don't go any further than the person did when they offended you. You don't go any further. To go further, to, to take out an eye and a leg, is to then go into the realms of unjust, injustice, because you've gone further than the law permits. The law is to teach you that justice balances itself out entirely. But Jesus comes along and says, right, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, if someone insults you by slapping you across the face, which was one of the ways that you could be insulted back in the day here, they would take the back of the hand and they'd, they'd uh, slap you across the face. It wasn't necessarily uh, an act of physical harm, but it was, it was enough to make your blood boil and want to strangle them, right? Because... <clears throat> If, you, if, you've, if you're not maturing, one of the first, you just retaliate. Okay, you just, and, and we can perfectly understand it, but Jesus is saying, no, kingdom people don't do that. Now, here's the thing. Jesus says he's not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. So the question is, how is turning the cheek fulfilling the law? If an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, was fulfilling the law, how is turning the cheek fulfilling the law. Well, what you'll notice is that both slaps are still happening. Okay? But instead of slapping the person back who slapped you, you are fulfilling the law by receiving the second slap. And this is exactly what we get to when we get to the cross of Christ. That what we have on the cross is Jesus Christ receiving the second slap. The cross is not about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The cross is not where God says, now it's my turn. The cross is not where this is what you've done to me, and now I get to repay it back to you. That's not what you see happening. What you see happening is Jesus on the cross voluntarily taking the second slap, thus fulfilling the law. And that's how we're to do it. Difficult, extremely difficult. But that's the difference between keeping the salt salty and losing your saltiness by retaliation, by fighting back. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's right. Okay? I'm not saying it's easy, but it's clear that it's right. So let's put all this together as we conclude. We need to keep in mind at least a couple of things. And the first is this, that Christians need to be well-educated enough to know the sacrifices that need to be made to keep the salt salty. 
We need to be well educated enough to know the sacrifices that need to be made to keep the salt salty. And we need to be well educated enough to know the dangers of not making those sacrifices. Because it's those dangers that dilute the salt and dim the light. So we all need to grow up, but we need to grow up in such a way where we're changing, not just the things around us are changing. This means that the ministries in the church, any church, need to understand what they're actually training the people to do. Or what they're actually training the people to become. I'm not against learning skills. I spent, I spent a number of years uh, on a building site and in fishing boats before I came into the ministry. I'm not against learning skills for a moment. But what I am saying is that there's a big difference between change that happens as a means of your hands going to work and change that happens as a means of God's word permeating your whole life. So in the church, we need to recognize what are we training these young people to do? Are we training them in such a way where they're able to fight their own temptations, where they're able to stand and fight the right battles in the right way so that their salt is not lost. And if we're not doing that, then why not? Then why not? These are important issues. So here's the exhortation as we finish. We want to be wise, but we want to be wise according to God's word, not our own. We want our children to be wise. And the only way they get there is if we show them how it's done. We need to demonstrate to them how to keep the salt salty so that we're able to teach them how to keep the salt salty. If a child is asked in the church, what do you want to be when you grow up? Their answer should be a person. I want to be a person. But too often it's assumed that they are one already because they're alive. But that's not how the New Testament sees it. We are all becoming mature in Christ because we're not already mature in Christ. When we know how to become a person, when we know how to become a person, biblically understood, we will then know how to become a husband. We will then know how to become a wife. We will then know how to become an employer. We will then know how to become an employee. All of those other things will come, but they will not come as they are meant to if you haven't first learned how to be a person. Another way of putting this is also how to keep your salt salty once you are maturing in Christ. Amen.